Hey, it's Shannon Ballard. Your Southern Mysteries is an independent podcast. It's made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. So if you'd like to help, you can join Southern Mysteries on Patreon and you get a little something in return. You can hear more than 60 episodes in the Southern Mysteries archive, and you also have an option to support the show and hear exclusive monthly episodes that are new this year called The Lesser Knowns, stories of lesser-known figures related to major historical events. Join me on Patreon today and catch up on all the episodes you haven't heard at patreon.com slash southernmysteries. In April 1969, Marie Dean Arrington became the second woman ever placed on the FBI's most wanted list. Arrington's criminal record included arrest for forgery, assault, and larceny. The year before she became one of the FBI's most wanted, Marie had been convicted for the death of her husband in 1964 and sentenced to 20 years for manslaughter. Her defense attorney appealed the sentence. While she was free on bond and awaiting a decision on appeal, Marie was arrested for the murder of a legal secretary in Lake County, Florida. Then came a trial, Marie's escape, and the FBI's years-long pursuit of one of their most wanted. Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard. This is the story of Mean Marie Arrington. When the FBI distributed their most wanted poster featuring Marie Arrington in April 1969, they warned the public she was a cold-blooded killer who should be considered extremely dangerous. Marie was described as a 35-year-old black woman with brown eyes and black hair. She was five feet, two inches tall and weighed about 120 pounds. She had noticeable scars on her chest, arms, and chin, and had worked as a domestic maid, laborer, and cook using several aliases, including Marie Swilly and Louise Arrington. A federal warrant charged Marie with unlawful interstate flight to avoid confinement after conviction for manslaughter and murder in the first degree. We don't know much about Marie Arrington's early days in her hometown of Leesburg, Florida. We only know there were problems at home. Marie quit school after the sixth grade, and by the time she was a teenager, had fallen in with the wrong crowd. She was described as a confident woman, a smooth talker who was willing to try anything to get what she wanted and needed. By the time she was in her 20s, she was the mother of five children. And as she would later say, she had to make sure she never heard her kids say they were hungry. Early on, she decided to get creative to try to make ends meet. In 1956, Marie was working as a maid at a Leesburg motel. The 23-year-old was tired of making just 75 cents an hour to scrub floors she came up with a plan to rob the motel manager, tie him up, and then tie herself up so it would appear she was a victim of the robbery. When police were alerted and arrived on scene, 
there was Marie, tied up, telling the story of how scared she was. Marie's story was pretty convincing until one of the officers noticed cigarette butts on the ground around her chair. They asked how she could have smoked while her hands were tied. Marie realized they had her, and she confessed to the robbery. That's when Marie Arrington said she made herself a promise. She vowed to always be willing to take risk, accept the jail time if she got caught, and whenever possible, have an escape plan. Marie did her time for the robbery at the motel and throughout her 20s kept taking risk. She had 61 violations from running drugs and inciting a riot to passing counterfeit currency. She wasn't afraid of the law. In fact, she married a former cop. When Marie met 35-year-old Lester Arrington, or Jack, as his friends called him, he was working as a bouncer at a Miami nightclub. Jack also worked as a trainer for professional boxers. Jack and Marie's relationship was complicated, tense, and ended with Marie killing Jack. On July 4, 1964, the couple were parked at Bethune Beach in Volusia County, Florida. They argued, and things turned violent. A witness later testified the two were yelling, and Jack attempted to choke Marie. The witness had to pull the couple apart. But the fight escalated, and Marie said Jack hit her. And in self-defense, she pulled a pistol from her purse, shot her husband, and drove away. She ended up at her mother's house, where police informed her later that night that Jack was dead. Prosecutors charged Marie with manslaughter because the weapon used to kill Jack was never found. Decades later, Marie would say they never found that gun because she stuck it in Jack's coffin when she said her last goodbye at his funeral. That gun was six feet under with him. During Marie's one-day trial, her defense attorney had trouble proving self-defense because witnesses testified Marie had threatened to kill Jack at least a month before he died. The jury deliberated 37 minutes before they returned a guilty verdict and sentenced Marie to 20 years behind bars. While she was in prison, Marie's attorney appealed her sentence, maintaining she killed Jack in self-defense and the sentence was too harsh. By 1968, her attorney wanted appeal hearing while Marie was out on bond, awaiting the ruling on that appeal, she fled Volusia County. On a mission of revenge, Marie felt both of her teenage children had been wronged by an attorney in Lake County, and she wanted to make him pay. In July 1967, Marie's 17-year-old son, Lloyd Dean, partnered with a friend to rob a gas station in Leesburg, one of them pointed a gun at the clerk as they stole $60. No one was injured, and the young men fled the scene. Weeks later, Marie's daughter Francina was arrested for trying to pass a bad check at a grocery store. During questioning, she told police she could help them with that armed robbery that happened earlier in the month if they helped her get a deal. She gave them the names Sean Brown 
and Eddie Lee Daly. During questioning of both of these men, police learned Sean Brown had arrived in the area just after the holdup at the gas station. It was Francina's brother Lloyd who helped his friend Eddie Daly pull off the robbery. When Eddie and Lloyd were arrested, Eddie was able to obtain private counsel. But Lloyd Dean was represented by Lake County Public Defender Bob Pierce. Both of the defendants were minors with no history of violence. Both of their attorneys advised them it would be best to avoid a trial, plead guilty, and in return, get lighter sentences. During their hearing in early 1968, Eddie Daly was sentenced to probation. When Lloyd was sentenced, the prosecutor mentioned his fear that Lloyd Dean would follow in his mother's footsteps, was headed toward a life of crime, and they needed to help him reform. The judge agreed and handed down the maximum sentence, life in prison. Lloyd sought new counsel and appealed the sentence. He claimed he had never been advised by Bob Pierce that he had a right to a trial by a jury and had been pressured into pleading guilty but the appeal failed. When Marie Arrington learned her son was behind bars for life and his co-defendant got probation, she was livid and she blamed Bob Pierce. When she learned it was Pierce who represented her daughter Francina on fraud charges and Francina had been sentenced to jail time, she vowed she would make Pierce pay for not fairly representing her children. Unfortunately, Bob Pierce's legal secretary would get caught in the middle of Marie Arrington's revenge plot. On the morning of Monday, April 22, 1968, Bob Pierce called Vivian Ritter at her home around 8.15. The 37-year-old mother of three had worked as Pierce's legal secretary at the Lake County Public Defender's Office for 13 years. Pierce asked Vivian to prepare papers needed for his court appearance that day. She took notes, prepared breakfast, and around 9 a.m., she pulled out of her driveway in her white 1965 Chevy Impala. She arrived at the public defender's office and got to work. Bob Pierce spent the first half of his day in court trying to call Vivian to see if those papers were ready. By 3 p.m., he returned to his office because he had received no answer to repeated phone calls. When Pierce arrived, he saw Vivian's cigarettes and her lighter were on her desk. The door was open and a client was sitting in the waiting room. The client mentioned he had been there for a while but hadn't seen Vivian. Nothing about this made sense to Bob Pierce. Vivian was reliable and predictable. He called the Ritter home, but got no answer. By 5 p.m., he notified authorities that something was wrong. Vivian Ritter was missing. Through the course of their investigation, detectives spoke with witnesses who had seen a black woman driving Vivian Ritter's car out of the parking lot of the public defender's office. They had seen a white woman who looked like Vivian in the passenger seat. Later that day, another witness told police they saw a black woman driving Vivian Ritter's Chevy alone with no passenger inside. The description of the woman driving Vivian's car matched the description of Marie Arrington, 
who was believed to have arrived at Bob Pierce's office on April 22nd to kill him. When he wasn't in, she abducted Vivian and came up with a plan to use Vivian to try to obtain the release of her son and daughter who were serving time in state prisons. Searches continued for Vivian, which led to the discovery of her car on Wednesday, April 24th. The car was found near Lisbon, about six miles from Leesburg. When investigators found substantial bloodstains in the trunk, they knew they were most likely looking for a body. Three days later, on April 27th, Vivian Ritter's badly decomposed, bullet-ridden body was discovered in an orange grove off State Road 44, about 30 miles outside of Leesburg. An autopsy revealed Vivian had been shot several times, had been hit in the head and neck, and other injuries, her fractured vertebrae and broken leg, were consistent with having been run over by a car several times. The day Vivian Ritter's body was discovered, police located and arrested Marie Arrington and charged her with kidnapping and murder. Since the day Vivian was reported missing, detectives had been following leads about Marie's alleged threats to make Bob Pierce and others involved with her children's incarceration pay. Prior to her capture, Marie broke into the home of Judge Troy Hall, who happened to be the judge who sentenced her son and daughter to prison time. Initially, Marie claimed she was nowhere near Bob Pierce's office on the day Vivian was kidnapped. She told police she had been on a fishing trip with her cousin Ellie. When police questioned Ellie about the alibi, she confirmed they had been fishing together. But days later, Ellie confessed she had lied. When investigators confronted Marie about the lie, she admitted she was at Bob Pierce's office the day Vivian Ritter disappeared. But she claimed she had been there under duress. Marie explained two men had abducted her and driven her to an orange grove in South Lake County. They drove her back to Leesburg, where they warned her to keep her mouth shut. They told her they had taken Bob Pierce's secretary, and Marie didn't tell police because they had threatened to kill her if she spoke to them. Marie then informed police there was an envelope hidden under a bathtub in the house where she had been staying. Inside the envelope, they found some of Vivian Ritter's personal effects, along with an unsigned letter that was addressed to Bob Pierce. Marie claimed these men, who threatened her and took Vivian Ritter, had given her the letter to deliver to Pierce. The men demanded the release of Marie's son Lloyd and her daughter Francina. If the demand wasn't met, Vivian Ritter would die and Judge Hall's wife would be taken next. Investigators were sure Marie was lying because her own mother placed her in Vivian Ritter's car the day of the disappearance. Early on in the investigation, when Marie's name came up as a possible suspect, investigators asked Marie's mother if she had seen her daughter that week. She explained to police she picked up Marie a few miles outside of Leesburg, 
She found it odd because when she arrived, Marie got out of a white Chevy that she left behind. Investigators also spoke with Marie's landlady, who testified she gave Marie a 22 caliber revolver for protection, but Marie never returned the weapon. Ballistic tests found that Vivian Ritter had been killed with a 22 caliber revolver. Marie Arrington stood trial for the kidnapping and murder of Vivian Ritter in December 1968. State Attorney Gordon Oldham theorized Marie Arrington's frustration with Bob Pierce and Judge Hall led her to the public defender's office, and Vivian Ritter was the innocent victim of Marie's cold-hearted desire to exact revenge for the convictions of her children. Along with her mother's testimony that placed Marie in Vivian Ritter's car after her kidnapping, the state called a taxi driver who testified he dropped Marie off a half block from the public defender's office on the morning of Vivian Ritter's kidnapping. Another witness who worked in the Orange Grove, where Vivian's body was discovered, testified that around noon on April 22nd, he saw Vivian's car pass near the Grove. The worker said the car looked like a vehicle his supervisor was expecting, so a few of the workers walked over to meet it. The car slowly passed them, no more than three feet from where they stood, and the workers saw two people inside. The driver matched the description of Marie Arrington. The passenger, Vivian Ritter. The defense told the jury the same mysterious men who abducted Vivian had abducted Marie, and she was forced to drive Vivian's car. They explained to the jury there was no proof of Marie's revenge plot. No proof she wrote the letter in the envelope. The prosecution could not prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt. Ultimately, the defense claimed Marie had been a victim of the men who took her and used her as a pawn in their plan to hurt the public defender, Bob Pierce. The jury deliberated about three hours and found Marie guilty of first-degree murder with no recommendation for mercy. Marie was sentenced to death by electric chair. She was imprisoned at the Women's Correctional Institute near Ocala. She spent a few months plotting her next steps, and on the night of March 1st, 1969, the woman who had been dubbed Mean Marie Arrington escaped. It was chilly the night Marie escaped. She was wearing her pajamas and a housecoat when she cut through a heavy window screen in her cell and scaled two wire fences. It was later revealed the night before her escape, prison guards carried out a standard security search of Marie's cell. During the search, a guard noted one screw had been hidden behind a baseboard and two small pieces of window mesh wire were discovered. An internal investigation found the guard missed the hole in Marie's window screen because she had underwear hanging in front of the window and said they were there because she needed to dry them. With Marie's escape from prison, she became one of the FBI's most wanted fugitives in April 1969. People around Lake County were terrified 
that Marie would come back and finish her revenge plot. Possibly go after Bob Pierce or Judge Hall. Maybe go after Prosecutor Oldham, who had sent her to death row. The Florida legislature passed a bill that offered a $5,000 reward for information that would lead authorities to Marie. And that bill said they wanted her dead or alive. What law enforcement didn't know was that Marie Arrington had showed up back home in Leesburg, was staying there for a while after her escape, but people were so scared to turn her in, they didn't say anything. She had proven she had a temper, was bent on revenge, and could escape a high-security prison. No one was willing to turn in mean Marie and risk being added to that list of people who had wronged her. Eventually, Marie left Florida, and she was on the run for years. She made her way to New Orleans, where she used an assumed name to get a waitressing job at a drugstore lunch counter. She would wait on customers, reading stories about this woman wanted by the FBI, while internally delighting in the fact that she was outsmarting law enforcement. The only time she felt nervous was when employees from the post office came in. She feared they would recognize her from the most wanted posters hanging up in the post office lobby, but they never did. It would be Marie's desire to stay connected with her family and friends back home in Leesburg that led the FBI to her lunch counter. Investigators had tapped the phones of Marie's family and friends, even her pastor. In December 1971, the FBI were able to trace a call she made to her pastor and learned it came from a phone booth in New Orleans. The FBI went out and searched the neighborhood, and an agent spoke with employees at a drugstore lunch counter. He showed them a photo of Marie, and they said she looked a lot like one of their co-workers, Lola Nero. An FBI agent returned during Lola's shift and ordered milkshakes. They took the cup Lola used to make the drinks so the lab could lift fingerprints. The woman behind the lunch counter, Lola Nero, was one of their most wanted. Marie was arrested on December 22, 1971. The FBI returned her to Florida, where she was sentenced to an additional 10 years in prison for her escape. One year later, Marie Arrington made one last great escape. In 1972, the Supreme Court struck down capital punishment, ruling it unconstitutional in several states, including Florida. On August 28, 1972, Marie Arrington escaped the death penalty when her sentence was commuted to life in prison. Marie would later say, she wished the death sentence had been carried out. When she was captured and returned to Florida, she was understandably considered a high risk for escape. She was imprisoned and placed in solitary confinement at Rayford, a maximum security prison for men. Over the next decade, she was transferred several times, always to maximum security facilities and with the exception of a few years, when she was allowed to work in an infirmary, she was held in solitary confinement. Now, prison officials explained they had to keep her in solitary to prevent her escape 
and ensure her security as the only woman in the prisons where she was confined. In 1983, Marie began a campaign to earn release from solitary, but her willingness to talk to the media didn't help her case at her many hearings. Back in 1973, Marie had given several interviews. In the first, with the Tampa Tribune, Marie was asked if she had any regrets. Her reply, I'd do it all over again if I got out and was in the same situation I was in 10 years ago. That didn't help her case in those hearings. In the second interview with Marie in 1973, she was asked how she spent her days. She said she liked to watch Jeopardy, solve puzzles, and eat Almond Joy candy bars. She also shared a poem she wrote about life behind bars in solitary. Good morning, Mr. Bed, and good morning to you, Mrs. Bars. Can this little sparrow lay down his weary head? Not here to stay, only for a day. That is when the man named Jesus promises to make a way. Mr. Bed, if you can, do tell. Is this the place they call hell? 80-year-old Marie Dean Arrington died at Lowell Correctional in Ocala, Florida on May 10th, 2014. The son of Gary Oldham, the state attorney who prosecuted Marie, welcomed that news, telling the Florida Sun Sentinel that her death made him feel good. In his words, if there's a heaven or a hell, she is in hell for sure. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. To see photos and sources for this episode, check the show notes at southernmysteries.com. Special thanks to the Southern Mysteries patrons who help make this independent podcast possible. Couldn't do this without all of my patrons, including our newest, Brenda from Green Cove Springs, Florida, Meredith from Murfreesboro, Tennessee, Carrie from Shreveport, Louisiana, and Tina from a mystery location. When you join Southern Mysteries on Patreon, just like Brenda, Meredith, Carrie, and Tina, you get access to the show archives with more than 60 episodes, and you have the option to hear monthly bonus episodes. There's an archive of Southern Mysteries shorts, and this year, new bonus episodes called The Lesser Knowns. There's a lot of stories you can hear on Patreon that you can't hear anywhere else. So support the show today at patreon.com slash Southern Mysteries. And it's important to know it's easy to opt in and out of giving. So I hope you'll try it out. And even if you can't financially support Southern Mysteries right now, there are plenty of ways to show you're a fan and help spread some love for this little podcast. Share about it on your socials and you can leave a review where you're listening. Doing that helps the show grow because it helps other people discover Southern Mysteries. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for listening. 